So after that steamy scene, we jump back to the present, and we are in South Dakota. Womp womp. Wow. <laughs> what do you have against South Dakota, Colin? Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Other Brothers Podcast, the show where two best friends give their thoughts and opinions on all consumable content out there in the world. I'm Colin. And I'm John, and we are your hosts. Today, we're going to be talking about The Eternals. Yeah, next MCU movie. Woo! So, Colin, summary. Give me a sentence about the Eternals. All world history is not what we expect, even in the MCU. Wow, that's actually a really good sentence. Did you think about that sentence? Not at all. That was no. That was awesome. (laughs) Oh man, I don't know if I have a better sentence than that. Anyway, I didn't think of anything before this. Okay, here we go. Most of the gods that we know in different cultures weren't actually gods, but other things. Robots. (laughs) Robots. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to spoil anything. Oh, yeah. No spoilers at this point. If you're, uh, if you're still here, guess what? Spoilers. There's going to be spoilers. Speaking of spoilers, spoilers from here on out. And you've been spoiled by that little bit. You're welcome. Yeah. So here we go. Spoiler <laughs> away. So mm-hmm. I saw this movie twice. I saw this movie once, I think, opening weekend. And then I saw it again last week. So it's been in theaters for roughly like two weeks now. And I saw it again this past week. The first time I saw it, I really enjoyed it. I did. I thought it was really cool. I don't think it's like at the level of some other Marvel movies that have come out personally, but I did enjoy it. I think it's the first statement. I really enjoyed the story. I thought it was interesting. I always enjoy seeing new characters. So that was kind of fun. This movie's, for what it is, it's a long movie. It is a very long movie. It is about two and a half hours long, something like that. Yeah. So it's a long movie, but we are going to power through it and only focus on the big main points as we go through it. But before we do, Colin, what are your initial thoughts on The Eternals? I had no idea what to expect of this movie. For certain Marvel movies, I have kind of a general idea, even though I haven't read the comics or haven't really dug into what the trailers are doing or saying. This movie snuck up on me. And kind of like Guardians of the Galaxy, I knew nothing about it going in. I knew that there was some sort of time thing through history, and it was an ensemble movie, and that was about it. One thing that's really weird about the current MCU is that we don't really have origin story movies anymore. So you get characters that are involved in this prolonged, not even movie series at this point, they're just really long episodes of a TV show. And we're seeing this TV show as the MCU in theaters. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the reason why, like, it is not a bad movie. Like, I had fun. But it's just an odd movie. Yeah. It's just very different. But not bad. Different, I think, is what I would go with. Yeah. So, like I was just saying, the movie takes place all throughout history. And we get the history of the MCU, or at least the furthest back we've seen in the history of the MCU, at, what, 9000 B.C.? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, like crazy early on in in Earth's history. And we see this guy up on top of a rock fishing with his son. And this giant monster just leaps out of the water. And he looks back like, oh, man. And just gets completely (laughs) bitten in half. Like, it is... The MCU has gotten a lot more violent. I was going to say, the first thing I said is the beginning really sets a tone. And you know what? The deviants for the design of a space monster, they're kind of scary looking. They're very scary looking. 
Yeah. I'm kind of glad, though. It feels like the MCU is growing and maturing and kind of growing with the times and not sticking with the similar light tone and light feel that they had. Granted, there are light moments in this movie, but the movie is and the series and the MCU as a whole is evolving along as the MCU grows. Yeah, I agree with that. So we don't stay in 9000 BC for very long, but we do get to briefly see all of our Eternals characters. And they all have different powers. They can all do different things. And they make a really good team. They do, which is really interesting to watch and see. Yeah, the team is already formed, already at its peak. And it's like, all right, so we're not doing this origin movie, but it has to be an origin to explain who they are to us. Yes. That's kind of what I was trying to explain with it being kind of an origin movie, but not quite. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really an origin movie, but it's all characters that we don't know. And it's exposition randomly throughout because there are lots of different flashback moments to show exposition and explain how we got to where we got. So it's formatted in a very interesting way. Yeah, and I don't know if that plays to the strength of the movie or not. Like you were saying, there's a lot of flashbacks. I feel like it would be an extreme editing challenge to try and take this movie and put it in chronological order. Yes, that would be very, very difficult to do. I think doing that would just make it confusing, though. Yeah. Because when they place the flashbacks really fits with what's going on throughout. So then we meet a few of our characters in modern day. We meet Cersei, who is one of the Eternals. We meet Sprite, who is also one of the Eternals. And we meet Dane, who is not one of the Eternals. No. He's just a good old human guy. And the next note I have says, Dane seems cool and pretty chill. And the reason I said that is because (laughs) Dane very quickly finds out that Cersei and Sprite are Eternals. He did not know that initially. And he finds that out because a Deviant attacks them. So Cersei and Sprite are forced to use their powers. And Dane kind of just rolls with it. Yeah. He's way more chill about it than I think most people would be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We also meet Icarus in this scene. Yeah, and I have a note. Icarus comes in, mm-hmm. and he uses his laser beam eyes, is fighting the Deviant, using really strong punches, getting thrown into a building. But he's also being, like, really cocky. And the note that I wrote is, wow, Homelander sucks. I just wrote that as, like, a, oh, this guy can fly, he can shoot laser beams, and he's strong. I didn't know that the rest of the movie was going to go that way. Yeah, no, I didn't either. At this moment, I wrote, Icarus is literally Superman. So basically the same (laughs) note, except mine is nice and yours is bad. So yeah. Well, actually, the full note is, wow, Homelander sucks. Wait, never mind. He seems all right. Eh. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Then after they stop that Eternal, at least momentarily, Cersei and Dane have a conversation about Cersei being an Eternal and... Cersei, Icarus, and Sprite are like, okay, we need to go and find Ajak. So Ajak is the leader of their group of Eternals. And what that means is Ajak has this connection with this overarching god who is called a Celestial. And his name is Arishim. And he is terrifying. Arishim is terrifying. He's so scary to me. One, because he's just huge. And also, he literally is a god. He wields cosmic power. Yes. And it's so scary. So Ajak is the in-between for Arisham and the Eternals and what their mission on Earth is. And what has been told to them is that their mission is to take Earth and create a good world out of it. 
is to help the humans on earth grow and become intelligent and live and thrive on earth. We see that through a series of different flashbacks. The next flashback taking place in Babylon. Babylon looks amazing. It looked so cool. Yeah. That that was also one of my notes. I also wrote the Eternals literally built the planet. Yeah. And that's to your note of goodbye history books like <laughs> and everything we know. But yeah, my thoughts during this Babylon scene were literally what did the people think that the Eternals were? Because there was no like rioting against them. These literal superhero gods are just here and still making us live our life without being able to progress unless we figure it out on our own for the most part. So I kind of took it as two different things. I took it either as they are seen as living gods, but because they are humble for the most part, it's just kind of like they're not to be praised. They are here to help, but they are not... Not here to give you everything. Well, they're here to help. They're not here to give you everything. They fight these demon monster things, and they want to remain within the world, within the people, but not ruling over them. You know, like, you guys rule yourselves. You are humans. Let human civilization be. We are not controlling you. Except for one guy. Yep. Druig. Druig is the scariest Eternal, in my opinion. Yeah. His ability to mind control people... Mm-hmm. is the second idea that I had as to why they're kind of low-key is that he probably just mind-controlled them and was like, nope, we're not your gods. Yeah. The only reason I wasn't sure about that is because later in the movie we see Ajax saying to Druig, don't use your powers to stop mm-hmm. the humans from doing what they do. But maybe that doesn't include... Like them. Yeah. So Because that helps them blend in and whatnot to help yeah. them like continue their mission. But Druig's powers are really scary. Druig really is the most godlike Eternal because he has that much power over the human mind. But this is another thing that relates to what you said earlier about history not mattering. How did they keep, one, themselves out of history, but how did they keep deviants out of history? I think that is explained away by the mythical beasts and monsters that we read about as like, Oh, there was a fight with a dragon. A dragon killed 10 men. I guess that's fair. I guess that is true. And I mean, in all of these cultures that they helped, they have these gods. Like Gilgamesh is a legitimate god. Athena is a god. They're all kind of in culture, just I guess in that way. So Then we get an idea for some of the personality around who these celestials are as people. And one thing made very apparent is that they don't age because Sprite in all these flashbacks is the same age as Sprite in the recent. And honestly goes for all of them because we're going back 9000 BC to present day, you know, post Thanos snap. So that's what, 2025, 2026? Like that, that is quite the difference in time and mm-hmm. they don't age at all. Nope. We also get to know who they are in and amongst themselves, who plays with who, who's married to who who is in love with who who just enjoys being around who which ones yeah aren't quite like buddy buddy but still get along because they're family you know Mm -hmm. you, you get an idea for who they are as a group so then we get a love scene between icarus and cersei and i have to say it's a bit steamy for a marvel movie a bit steamy for disney to allow and it went on for a while I was quite surprised, more so because we haven't seen a scene like that in a Marvel movie before. Like, I get it. They exist in movies, and, like, Mm -hmm. it's 
you know, adults doing what adults do, but it was weird seeing it in a Marvel movie. Sure. Just because it hadn't really been in one before. And then yeah. also Disney being like, yep, this is what we're going to put on. Yeah. And I mean, I think Marvel in general has just gotten a little more adult. Well, I mean, that goes along with making it, you know, more intense, mm-hmm. things a little bit more scary, a little bit more graphic. Yeah, exactly. I think that love scene really kind of made me unsure about Icarus. Like, Icarus had seemed cocky. He obviously is like the leader aside from Ajax, because that's the persona he gives off. He seems like he's the strongest. He can fly. So I was like, well, he's important. That's cool. And clearly after this love scene, he's important. But something happened between him and Cersei. And they, they talk about that. They talk about how he disappeared and Cersei was left kind of just waiting for him to come back. And he didn't. So she moved on. And that's where Dane comes in. And the fact that Icarus and Cersei were not together as in like in a relationship, but were together on their mission of finding the rest of the Eternals made me nervous because Dane wasn't there. And I was like, but I really liked Dane in the beginning. He seems so chill. Yeah. Dane is the only character that I had someone say something as to, oh, that character in this comic ends up being this character going into this movie. That's all I knew. So I thought that something might happen with him during the movie, but we'll get there. So after that steamy scene, we jump back to the present. And we are in South Dakota. Womp womp. Wow. (laughs) What do you have against South Dakota, Colin? Oh, after having driven through it from bottom to top, and then back through it from top to bottom, after going to North Dakota, there is nothing there. Which is better, north or south? South. All right. Well, hey, that's one less (laughs) womp from me. Yeah. Like, I thought people were exaggerating when it was just miles of nothingness. Nope. It is miles of nothingness. Wow. Okay, well, lucky for us, we get to go see South Dakota because that's where Ajax lives. Well, lived. Yeah, we see Ajax, but Ajax is no longer with us. And Ajax being killed was like my first sign of the important people are going to die in this movie feeling. I was like, well, Ajax seemed really important because Ajax was literally the connection to Arishim. Ajax was the leader of all of them. And now Ajax dead. So in this scene, they're trying to figure out what to do and trying to decide, all right, who do we go see next? As Cersei goes over to mourn Ajax, and suddenly this orb rises from Ajax's chest and goes into Cersei. It almost feels like she's being possessed, but it's kind of a vision of Erisham. And it's just, again, he's terrifying. But now she is the connection to Erisham. Yeah. This is talked about a lot throughout the movie that Icarus was clearly the next in line as the leader, but instead of Ajax choosing Icarus to lead the Eternals, Ajax chose Cersei to lead the Eternals instead. So that's like a recurring theme throughout. So then they start going around getting the quote-unquote gang back together. And I think it's so interesting, especially with all the different flashbacks in the middle of all of that happening. But the first guy that they go and they try and talk to is Kingo. And Kingo Mm -hmm. is so funny to me. Kingo's one of the funniest ones to me. I love Kingo. Kingo is one of my favorite characters in this movie. But my all-time favorite character in this movie is his assistant, Karun mainly because he gets a whole lot of the comedic moments mm-hmm. but there's so many like character choices that he makes that it just makes the movie for me i love it yeah and him just being the human along for the ride with all these eternals throughout the movie just cracks me up so i do agree i really enjoy 
especially like their dynamic together, the two of them and their conversations and just the stupid back and forth that they have. It's awesome. But they're also like, you can tell just really good friends. And Kingo is a Bollywood movie star and has been a Bollywood movie star since the beginning of Bollywood films and making, you know, alias after alias, grandfather after grandson, just taking up new personas all the time. And he decides that this whole trip to find all the other Eternals would make for a great documentary. Yep. And that's awesome to me. I don't actually think it would turn out as a great documentary, but I think it's really funny seeing them try. I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see it or see what was filmed like in the movie yeah. as like a post credit scene. Kind of like what they do with like Super 8. The kids are making the movie throughout the whole thing, mm-hmm. but you don't see the movie during any of the normal movie. The credits start rolling, and then halfway through the credits, you get to see the kids' movie that they made yeah. during the movie. Mm-hmm. I was kind of hoping that we'd get something like that. Yeah. Just because, oh, it would be so much. I know it would be like seeing the same scenes that we just saw on screen, but maybe like sprinkling a couple other like travel bits. Yeah, that'd be funny. I agree with that. So after they pick up Kingo and Karun, they head to find Gilgamesh, and with Gilgamesh is also Thena. So you said Karun's your favorite, but I think Gilgamesh might be my favorite character. He is, like, the heart of the team. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a good guy. He has so much passion, but he's also just really funny in the scenes that he's in, and I think it's awesome. As we're being introduced to Gilgamesh, we get to see Sprite kind of show off her powers of being able to create illusions that are convincingly real. And having Gilgamesh as, like, the straight man, like, the the deadpan, like, yeah, he'll crack a joke every now and then, but having him have this deadpan personality, Mm -hmm. while being also very warm and welcome, and then Sprite comes in and Gilgamesh will say something, and next thing you know, he's wearing a a baby bib, and (laughs) just perfect. Yeah, I love it. And one of the things that really got me about Gilgamesh is just how caring he actually is, and he really shows his care specifically toward Thena, who is one of the other Eternals. And Thena was like the inspiration in the world for Athena, who is the goddess of war in Greek mythology. And Angelina Jolie knocked it out of the park. Oh, she made Thena literally, when I envision like the word badass, that's, Thena is like what I think of. Thena was so badass in this movie, and I think it's so cool. But she's not just a kick-ass fighter. She's also got these things that she's dealing with. Yeah, so Thena is dealing with something that in the movie they called mind-weary. And what that is, essentially, as they explain it, it is a collection of too much memory for her brain to handle, essentially. So the fact that she has been alive since 9000 BC, and later on in the movie we find out actually longer than that, the amount of memory that her brain is trying to contain is essentially cracking her mental state. And it puts her in this trance almost where she essentially just tries to kill everybody. It made me think like fight or flight without being able to distinguish friend from foe. Yeah, she has no control over what her body's doing. And it's almost like she blacks out because she doesn't remember it when she wakes up from this mind-weary trance that she's in. And I wrote down that the mind-weary thing is absolutely terrifying. There's a lot of scary things in this movie. There are a lot of scary things in this movie. <laughs> For a not horror movie, it's a pretty scary movie. It's a very psychologically scary movie. Especially some of the concepts they start to introduce. For instance, Thena, after coming into the group and 
Cersei telling Gilgamesh and Athena that Ajax has passed, the group mourns, but then Cersei this whole time has been trying to get in contact with Erisham to figure out what the mission is, what's the next step, explain that Ajax has died, and kind of get an idea as to what she needs to do and what they need to do as a group. The Deviants are back, what do we do? And at this point, she finally is able to contact Erisham. And he explains that the whole purpose for having the planet Earth is to birth a new celestial. The celestial will feed for thousands and thousands of years until it is ready to break free from the core of the planet and become a new celestial. And also that Olympia, which is the place that they think they are from, isn't actually real. They just go back, get their minds wiped, and then go off to the next planet to start life keep life thriving to birth another celestial. Yes. And this is the big moral debate of this movie because yes, it births a celestial, which is important because that is how life is created. But in the process, it destroys the planet that the celestial seed was put into. So if the celestial is born out of earth, earth no longer exists because earth will be destroyed. They have this debate between them multiple times of, do we continue the mission? Do we stop Tiamut, who is the name of the celestial in Earth? Do we stop the celestial from being born? Or do we let it happen and let Earth be destroyed so billions of other lives can be created on other planets? Oh, and we only have a couple of days to decide. Yes. Like two. Yeah. At this point. But also finding out that their home planet, their home that they thought they were from, doesn't actually exist. That's terrifying. And that they're robots. So yeah, we're, we're just going to keep this terrifying. Oh yeah, and they're robots. This is yeah. when we find out that they're robots. Remember yeah. that spoiler from like 30 <laughs> minutes ago? Yeah. It's still in the first half of the movie. It's fine. It wasn't that bad of a spoiler. <laughs> uh, you know, I love this. You know, what is the moral debate? What should they do? And also like the idea that this planet, all these humans that exist, are just part of a continuous ongoing process that get wiped out. Yeah. It's a bigger, more thought-questioning movie than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, this debate made me think. I was like, do I want them to save Earth? Should they save Earth? What's the better option here? Like, it made me think that, and I'm here, a human, sitting on Earth. Like, if this was actually happening in my world, obviously I wouldn't want to die. But what about all the other people that won't be created or all the other beings and the, the thing is, the Celestials aren't doing it out of malice. So it's a scary thing because of how we are going to be affected by it. But it's not being done with malice intent. Yeah. It's being done with lack of care. You, you could argue that there's no empathy in it. No, none. But the fact that it's not being done for a nefarious or just evil for the sake of evil reason is really different than a lot of the Marvel movies that exist. You know, like, oh, I'm greedy. I want power. I want to take over. I want to be in control. This is the process of life. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And I was going to say, I would argue that initially with Infinity War, Thanos' motives weren't out of malice either. They really were out of population control. The difference being Thanos was like, I'm going to do this because I think it's right. Whereas the Celestials, this has been going on since creation because this is how creation happens. And Thanos really enjoyed killing. Thanos enjoyed the, I'm just going to go to a planet and murder half of it. Yes, but I think in his mind, it wasn't so much, 
I'm doing it because I like murder. It's more I'm doing it to help overall. I think he enjoyed his job a little bit. I mean, I'm sure, yes. <laughs> Regardless, yes, the Celestials don't have emotion because that's not what their job is, essentially. They don't have that empathy for life because they're trying to honestly create more life. There's a give and a take, and I think that's how they view it. And this part of the movie looks amazing. Like going out into space and watching the process of a planet grow and then just explode as a celestial sprouts out of it. Yeah. It looks stunning. Yeah. No, I agree. It looks so cool. After Cersei learns all this, she goes back and she does tell the rest of the Eternals that are with them right there. So like Kingo, Gilgamesh, Athena, Sprite, Icarus. So they tell them and they're like, okay, we need to get everybody else together and we need to figure out what to do. So the next person they go to find is Druig. They go to the Amazon. Druig is basically this like all-powerful reigning ruler in the Amazon because he has this mind control power that he just uses to get the people there to do whatever he tells them to. And I have to say, Druig sucks. Druig sucks. And honestly, that is the most quotable part of the movie because that is what Kingo says in that scene. He says, Druig <laughs> yeah. sucks, and it's true, man. <laughs> but they find Druig, and they're just in the Amazon, and then we get a scene between Kingo and Sprite. And this scene made me feel mm -hmm. so bad for Sprite because Sprite's just observing. Sprite does that a lot because Sprite is very behind the scenes, I feel like, a lot of times. But Sprite is just watching Icarus doing whatever Icarus is doing. And Kingo comes up to Sprite and says, I'm sorry that you're in love with Icarus and there's nothing you can do about it. And he uses this analogy of Peter Pan where he explains that Cersei is Wendy, Icarus is Peter Pan, and Sprite is Tinkerbell because Tinkerbell has always been in love with Peter Pan, but there's nothing that Tinkerbell can do about it because it would never work. And mm -hmm. I thought that analogy was so accurate and really powerful. And it made me really, really feel bad for Sprite in that moment. I was like, oh, Sprite. Especially as, you know, this movie is taking place in 2025, 2026. And as far as we know, this has been an ongoing thing for her since before 9000 BC. Yeah, that's a long time to have unrequited love and seeing the person you love marry another one of your team. But we don't have too, too long to really get used to this Amazon scene because suddenly the Deviants attack. Yeah, no, the Deviants do attack. And one thing we didn't mention about the Deviant from the beginning of the movie when it attacks Cersei and Sprite and Dane is that Deviant did something different than Deviants that they had seen in the past, and that Deviant healed itself. Yes, Deviants cannot heal, and suddenly now they can. Yeah, Deviants don't have powers, but this Deviant was able to heal itself. And then later on, they draw the conclusion that this Deviant is the one that killed Ajax, and what Ajax's power was, was to be able to heal. So they think that it stole Ajax's power, and that is why it is able to heal. So this Deviant is, like, stronger than all the other Deviants that they've ever faced, and it appears along with four or five other Deviants as well. And it attacks everyone in the Amazon. Their main focus is the Eternals, which is also something new because in the past, since 9000 BC, Deviants' only focus were humans. And now the Deviants are mainly focused on the Eternals, which is very strange. And I was so sad in this scene because Gilgamesh dies and it really hurt oh. me, Colin, because <laughs> he was my favorite. So going into this movie with how many characters there were, I had a feeling at least a couple of them would die. Like, it was just kind of uh, in the MCU, just with how many characters we have to pay attention to and everything that's going on within the MCU. 
it makes sense that at least a couple of these characters won't make it to the end. Yeah. Or if they do make it to the end, they're going to be incapacitated in some way that they won't be involved moving forward. Mm-hmm. And when Gilgamesh passed, oh, man, it hurt. It hurt. I really liked him. But on that note, after Gilgamesh is killed by the Deviant, we see that the process of killing him was by taking his power. So we do actually see this Deviant steal an Eternal's power. Now, the Deviants up until this point, monsters. Like, full-on, they kind of looked like a blend between the really big scary things from Edge of Tomorrow and, like, the weird sci-fi existential horror Lovecraftian monster kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When this one absorbs Gilgamesh's power, it's the same one that absorbed Ajax's power, and then suddenly it has more of a human face, and it goes from being this monster thing into this human monster thing. And it's just a really weird transition. Well, I was going to say, I was like, it absorbs those powers, and it also changes its form. It becomes this almost human form. It, like, gains sentience, and it is this super smart being now. And it was just a weird transition because it happened so fast. Yeah, in that moment, I was a little confused by it. I was like, oh, wow. I didn't know that that could happen. And they later kind of explain it a little bit that when he is absorbing an Eternal's power, he is also absorbing their memories and their knowledge. So that is kind of what is changing his form because he is becoming smarter. He is becoming more human-like because he is gaining these Eternal's memories. So not necessarily human, but close enough that it becomes this humanoid form with these thoughts. I just want to throw this in real quick. I really enjoyed seeing Kingo's powers. Because finger guns? So cool. (laughs) So good. So I like Gilgamesh, I think, the most. But if I could have any one of their powers, I feel like it would be Kingo's just because finger guns seem so fun. And it's so cool. I'm like, yeah, I just want to be pew pew and like have actual things happen. (laughs) Like, I think it's awesome. But anyway, sad over the death of Gilgamesh. Yes. Deviants are growing. Yeah. And then a nice lengthy battle still that happens after that between Deviants and they kill a bunch of them, but there's one left. And this part of the movie, I think, was the most confusing thing to me. So what happens is there's one Deviant left and basically Cersei and this Deviant end up in this like pond. And what Cersei's power is she can touch something and change what it is. So, like, she could touch a rock, and she says this in the movie when Kingo is trying to film her for the documentary, and all she can come up with is, I can change a rock into water. I can change a rock into steel. I can change a rock into this. (laughs) She was like, I even turned a rock into air. I was like, you've turned other things aside from rocks, though, Cersei. (laughs) But anyway, she can change the matter that something is, but it doesn't work on sentient beings. So she can't turn a living thing into something else. But... In this moment, she turns a deviant into a tree, but it still has like deviant parts and deviant form to it. It's just also a tree. And the thing that confused me about it is they legitimately did not explain how that happened. So my, my interpretation of it is that she's always been able to do that. But Cersei's character motivation and things that she's wanted to do is just integrate into human society. And yeah, she's a fighter. She fights alongside of the other Eternals, but she's never been put into a position like that. And she's also more reserved. You know, she's not the leader. She's not a leader. She's, at least she doesn't think she is. People listen to her, but I don't think she realizes that people do. And in that moment, I feel like that's her putting forth her full power and her full, not effort, but really her, uh, like, confidence. 
Yeah. Either that or because she accepted the thing from Ajax to herself and became the leader through that. I wonder if she got like a power upgrade from that or something. That might be part of what it is, honestly, because later in the movie, they talk about using that orb to give them a connection and more power, essentially, later on. But that could be part of it. The thing that I told myself to kind of justify it is when she finally connects with Arisham that first time, Arisham says that he created the Eternals because he messed up with the Deviants, because Arisham also created the Deviants. But he created them in a way that they could evolve and become predators versus just the prey. And that was the issue. So he created the Eternals so they could destroy the Deviants, but the Eternals cannot evolve. And I just, in my mind, justified the fact that Cersei is, for some strange reason, an exception to this rule, and she did evolve her powers and was able to do that. And I don't know why that's what I said to myself, but that's what I told myself to make it okay. (laughs) I was like, oh, Cersei's just special. That's why she's the main character in this movie. She can evolve anyway. And then I thought about it more. I was like, well, maybe it's because she is so connected to the humans, and humans are constantly evolving. Maybe even though she's technically a robot, kind of, She's still picking up these human traits and evolving that way. I don't necessarily think that that's true or right, but that's just kind of what I justified in my brain. I think the most logical answer is the fact that she now has this orb and this connection to Arisham, and that's why. My biggest issue with it is they never talked about it. They did not discuss why that happened in that moment. So regardless of why she could turn this deviant into a tree she turned a deviant into a tree which is something new that has never happened she was like i just changed a sentient being i don't know how that happened but they finally convinced druig to come along with them because they need all of them and they talked to druig and they said druig you are the only one who can stop this celestial because you have the power to control minds so if we can figure out a way to get you close enough to this celestial to put it to sleep so it doesn't explode the earth until we figure out a better plan that's what we're gonna do and it takes druig a while to finally be okay with that but he comes to terms with it and he's like all right i'll try so they move on to the next person and they go to find festos and I also really like Festos in this movie. Uh, Festos is amazing. Festos is a family man, which is really interesting because right before we meet him, they say that Festos has given up on humanity because he gave humans the technology for the atom bomb. And we see a flashback scene of him in the aftermath of Hiroshima. And he is just so upset because he's like, I messed up. They cannot be helped. They're just bad. Then we go to this scene where he is happily married and he and his husband have a wonderful young son and they live in this nice little house and it seems like Festos is living a relatively normal human-like life. He is really enjoying his retirement. Yes, he is. And it's awesome. But at the same time, because I was already feeling like anyone could die at any moment, I was like, oh, Festos has a family that makes me nervous for him or his family. (laughs) Oh, the rest of this movie, I wrote a note, and all I could think as soon as I saw how happy this family was, was they better make it, and Karun better make it. Yeah. (laughs) And they, through a little bit of not wanting to be part of it, and kind of realizing, oh, it's either help or lose the family, he decides to help. And what I think is really cool about that is it's not any of the Eternals that convince him, it's his husband. Yeah. Festus has such a cool power because his power is so technology-based in terms of creating technology and using the things that he creates like it's not like power coming from nothing, 
but he creates the technology out of nothing, and that's what's really cool to me about it. Next, they go to find their ship that they came to Earth on in the first place. And with Festus, they can finally get into that ship because he can raise it up from underground where it has been either stored or lost. They bring up the ship, they go on the ship, and we meet our last Eternal, Makari. And Makari's super cool, too. Makari's great, and she is deaf. And so she communicates only in sign language. And the actress is also deaf. Yeah. So, I don't know if you know, is Makari being deaf because of the comics or is that just an mcu i don't know choice because they liked the actress and wanted her to be makari i think it's because of the actress okay because at one point i read an article i something about angelina jolie having to talk the directors into not using cue cards because since she's an actress she is used to playing a character that would then have another character overdub the voice and they'd match it up and it would be fine rather than do that they just let her be deaf which i think is so freaking cool and having several of the other characters learn sign language to communicate with her really kind of just showed how much of a family these Eternals are. Yeah. And Makari's power is that she is a speedster. Yeah. And in the last couple of years, we've seen a few different speedster shows and movies. You know, you have the Flash TV show, you have A-Train in The Boys, you know, you have all these different speedsters. Makari might be my favorite. Not just in personality, though, like in terms of how she uses her powers, what they look like, and, and all that stuff. Yeah, I agree with that, too. In this scene where they're in the ship and they are in, like, this messy room that was Festus's factory is the only scene that I had, like, any real issue with in this movie because it has no purpose. It's the scene where Druig and Icarus, like, swap a tablet and like hostess cupcakes. I loved it so much. <laughs> so the only reason I have an issue with it is because I don't understand why. And if it's just for humor, it doesn't make sense to me that they would put it there. To me, it seemed like they were both just kind of looking around this, for lack of a better word, jumbled mess of human history and just kind of, you know, the things are just scattered all around. And they found this thing that, you know, they kind of enjoy. But then they bump into the one person that has the thing that they would enjoy the most, and they have the thing that the other person would enjoy the most. And because they kind of don't quite get along 100%, they're like, all right, you know what? We're trading. And then they trade and go off on their own ways. Yeah, it just bothered me. It felt very out of place with everything that was going on. Oh, I absolutely loved it, because you never really see what the background characters are doing when, like, plot stuff is happening. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they're just kind of bumming around. Fair enough. So in this scene, we kind of also get to see the connection that Druig has with Makari. So just like we said that Cersei and Icarus got married and were together, and they were together for a very, very long time, 5,000 years or whatever. Just a while. Yeah, for a while. We also see like small snippets of Makari and Druig also kind of being like a thing. I don't necessarily know if it's a relationship, but it looks like a relationship. No, it's, it's definitely a relationship. But... We learn so much about Cersei and Icarus's relationship, and I know that they're like the protagonist and antagonist in this movie, but I just wish that we could see more of Druig and Makari's relationship and just like how that started and why that started and how that formed, because we don't really get to. And I just thought it was cool, so I wanted to know more. I would have loved more of it too, and I wonder if that's on like the cutting room floor, just because this movie is so long. So following that, Festos presents to the group this idea of combining all of their powers together to form a unimind 
That way, Druig can tap into their overall power to put the Celestial to sleep. Yeah, and in the movie, they kind of bash on the name Unimind that Festos comes up with. It's not good. No, yeah. it's not. <laughs> I'm like, Unimind, really? Okay. I mean, with how old these comics are, they were written back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. A lot of drugs involved. Like, these are cosmic entity-like things. Of, of course, some of the names aren't going to be great. And I kind of love how, like, tongue-in-cheek Marvel is kind of with some of these names. Oh, yeah, no, but... I think it's so funny. It's awesome. But either way, they stick with Unimind. It's the name that they use for yeah. this brain idea that they have. This whole Unimind idea brings up, again, the debate of what do we actually do if that doesn't work kind of a thing? And is this a good idea or should we just let the Celestial be born and have the Earth be destroyed? Which, it's honestly pretty 50-50, almost. Mm -hmm. Icarus makes it very known that he is not for the plan of putting the Celestial to sleep and potentially killing it. Yeah, and Icarus in this moment kind of starts to show his cards. Like, the whole movie, he's been a little bit airy about the whole idea of yeah. everybody getting together not against it but not very pushing the idea forward or, or like really helping he's just kind of along for the ride and just kind of biding his time it almost feels like yeah and icarus says ajak put cersei in charge so cersei whatever cersei says is what we should do and that causes some argument because remember sprite's in love with icarus and Sprite believes that Icarus should be in charge, so she voices that opinion, and basically, Sprite saying, who cares what Ajax said, causes a whole fight between everyone about who should be in charge, what is the right thing to do, and... Tensions are high. Yes, and Icarus essentially tries to walk out, but before that happens, he's confronted by Athena, who's in the doorway. Yeah, and, you know, Athena and Icarus throughout this whole movie, and I guess throughout all time... I've kind of had this ongoing rivalry going where it's very much, hey, you're the best fighter in the world, but I kind of want to fight you. Yeah. And that kind of shows itself here a lot because they're kind of butting heads a little bit. Thena clearly doesn't agree with Icarus here, but no one has said anything wrong yet. Yeah, there, there hasn't been like a big fight. It's more of just an argument. Yeah. So Icarus goes past Thena and Kingo follows Icarus out and... Kingo's like, hey, boss, because he has always viewed Icarus as the boss, essentially. And so he's like, hey, boss, whatever you decide, I'm with you. And I'm pretty sure that's the actual quote. If it's not, it's very close to the actual quote. Yeah, it's something like that. But when that happens, Icarus has a flashback in his mind, and it's a flashback back to six days ago. Yep, in good old South Dakota. Back in South Dakota. And Icarus goes to visit Ajax. So yeah, Icarus is meeting with Ajax in South Dakota at Ajax's house to discuss the coming of the Celestial, and it's happening in one week from when they meet. So seven days, and Ajax voices to Icarus the fact that she thinks that they should try and stop the birth of the Celestial from happening. Because in all of the different worlds that she has been to, after seeing what humans have done, and yeah, there's something a little bit special about the human race. Yeah, and it's not something she's ever felt before now. So she says this to Icarus, and Icarus is kind of like, okay. And he says the same thing that Kingo says to him. He says, whatever you decide, I'm with you, essentially. And then what he does is he says, Ajax, I need to show you something. So they go to somewhere where it's snowy and cold and icy. So 
I have a note about them flying to this place. And I think it's more so passing landmarks just to kind of like show, hey, they're traveling really far distances. This place is in between this place. And I think they go over the bridge from Harry Potter, from like the Chamber of Secrets, when they're in the car and the train's going around that long like turning bridge. I think that's in that scene. I don't know, but I wrote a note about it. If it is, I missed that, but that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So what... Icarus is trying to show Ajax is that there are still deviants on Earth, and for the last 500 years, it was thought that they had been eradicated completely. But with climate change and global warming and the melting of the ice caps making it relevant to now, these deviants have thawed out because they were actually frozen in a glacier. So there's like five deviants that have thawed out, and Icarus is showing Ajax this, and he then proceeds to proceeds to shove Ajax off of a cliff down to where these deviants are. And these deviants just attack. Yeah, it does not go well. She fights back pretty good. She picks up a shotgun and, you know, is able to fight for a little bit. She heals her leg after falling and breaking it. Mm-hmm. She puts up a good fight. She does, especially for the fact that her power is healing herself. Because there's only so mm-hmm. much you can do with that when there are six deviants trying to kill you. But she does a pretty good job. But then out of this cave come these tentacles that just stab her in multiple places and through the neck. And we finally see the deviant that killed her and absorbed her powers. So, yes, it was a deviant that killed her. Yes, it did absorb her powers. But we now realize the reason that that happened is because Icarus is a backstabbing jerk. <laughs> I honestly was kind of surprised that Icarus killed Ajax, though. Because Icarus's like main sole purpose as an Eternal is to follow the head Eternal's orders, and he did not. Because he technically was following Arisham's orders, but still, it surprised me. Because he very much loved Ajax, very much cared about Ajax. And you see that yeah. when he takes Ajax back to the house in South Dakota, because he literally mourns over her right then and there with the guilt that he feels for doing what he did. But at the same time, he feels like it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I understand him being upset with what he did, but it's kind of like, dude, I know you're upset, but like, you're the one that did it. Yeah. You know? Exactly. So that happens, and then the flashback is over from Icarus's mind, and he heads back into the room with all the other Eternals. As he's walking into the room, you see Cersei kind of experimenting with her powers a little bit. And she takes, I think it's rocks, it might be twigs or something, and she puts her hands over it, and she takes her hands off, and then there's, a, like, two birds there. And I have a note, did, did she just create life? Her powers are kind of going nuts. I missed that, too. Wow. Oh, yeah, it kind of, like, shocked me when I saw it. That's a really cool thing that I missed. Darn. It was a really quick thing that happened. That's really interesting. So, Icarus comes back in the room. And essentially what happens is Icarus blows his cover of being on their side and like small tiny fight kind of breaks out. Icarus is like, I can't let you do this. And then he leaves and it pissed me off that Sprite went with him after him revealing that he killed Ajax to all of them. And he's like, I'm going to make sure that this emergence of the Celestial still happens. And it made me so mad that Sprite still went with him. Like I get it, love, but still. Made me very mad. And then Kingo leaves because he's like, I'm not going to fight you, but I also can't justify killing a Celestial. And you know what? Like, morally-wise, it's kind of like the right choice if you don't agree with this fight. You know, you don't want to hurt your friends. 
you don't want to hurt your family, but you don't think what they're doing is right, him choosing to just not fight altogether, for as much as it disappoints me that he doesn't take the side of stopping the Celestial, I think he does it the right way, whereas Icarus does not. Yes, I agree with that. I will say, though, I was sad that Kingo decided that because I like Kingo and I like his finger guns. And the fact that he wasn't in the final fight was kind of a little bit of a bummer to me. Yes, visually, the finger guns were just... Yeah. They were awesome. And I know we say finger guns and it sounds funny, but like it's actually so cool how he can control his power and charge up his finger guns to make them more powerful and like really use them. And I was bummed that that was not a part of the final battle. Though the most disappointing part about him choosing not to be part of the fight was the fact that when he leaves, Karun goes with him. <laughs> yeah. And and he says a very heartfelt goodbye and a little bit of a, hey, I'd like you guys to save the planet. That would be nice. If not, it was nice knowing you guys. Like, I might have been a little, I might be a little biased because I'm human, but I would appreciate it if you saved us. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get to this final battle, which I thought the final battle was real cool. We were saying earlier that this isn't the best Marvel movie. It's definitely not the worst, but this might be one of my favorite like ending fights in a Marvel movie in a while. Yeah, it's visually stunning. It really is. It's really creative, too, because everybody's using their powers like they've had their powers for 15,000 years. Yeah. They're also fighting people that they know the other people's powers. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to think technically through this whole fight, and you can see all of it you know, what is the smart move versus what is the strength move kind of thing. I think one of my favorite moments in this fight is Makari just pummeling Icarus with the speed that she has. And this is a testament to what you were saying about her using her speed power in one of the cooler ways that we've seen in a long time. Because, yes, she's fast, but with that speed comes legitimate force, and they show the use of that force with Icarus because she is running left and right as fast as she can, hitting Icarus. And Icarus cannot lay a finger on her, and it gets to a point where she like just pile drives into him, and he goes flying through a solid wall of rock. And I was like, that is probably the coolest use of speed power that I've seen in a long, long time. Oh, absolutely. Especially with how she uses her powers and how smart she is about how she's attacking Icarus. It's fantastic. It was so cool. They're all fighting. That's all happening. And Druig kind of gets knocked out of commission. So the whole... Oh, the whole plan goes out of whack. Yeah. And their backup plan is Cersei. Their backup plan was Cersei using her newfound ability to affect sentient beings that has only ever happened once that we've like... Yep legitimately seen <laughs> the plan is for her to kill tiamut the celestial yep. with her powers using the unimind but to do that she still needs to make physical contact with the celestial and so we start following cersei as she's trying to make her way up this volcano because of course there's a volcano one of my favorite parts about this fight scene though is sprite i know she's fighting with icarus so like at this point she's an antagonist mm -hmm. but the use of her powers and the ability to create these lifelike illusions and just fill the whole surrounding area with identical volcanoes that way nobody can choose the right one yeah it's really scary and kind of just shows that sprite even though she's done you know like changing people's costumes or little illusions or somewhat bigger illusions just how powerful she actually is because creating that that's kind of crazy yeah on the topic of sprite i will say the first time i saw this movie i did fall for her trick and i was like ajak Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, 
Sprite can do that. That makes sense. Yeah. But I did fall for it at first. I was like, how is Ajax alive? So that made me sad, but it's fine. All right. At this point of the fight, I've lost what's happened in my notes because I just wrote, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. That was brutal. Wow. Oh, this is insane. Oh, shit. Oh, never mind. I know exactly what I was talking about. It okay. was Thena fighting the Deviant because in the middle of the Eternals fighting amongst themselves, the head Deviant has shown up. Yeah. And he has a massive fight with Thena. And there were several moments during that fight that I thought Thena wasn't going to make it. Oh, yeah, no. I was expecting Thena to put up a really good fight, be killed by the Deviant, and then have the Deviant be this ultimate fighter, and then have the Deviant come into this fight and not break it up, but change what's going on in the course of the fight. I'm very glad that she did not die. Oh, me too. That fight and how it's done is just... Oh, I thought it was so cool. I thought that even though Thena was like kind of in the mind-weary state where she was not really cohesively there, she could still fight. And she does end up actually beating the Deviant, which was also a very unexpected way for that to happen. But it was really cool as well. And one thing that I wrote down, it's kind of a question. It's also just kind of a statement. It's, I'm assuming the fact that the sentient deviant started taking Thena's memory because, like, he stabbed her through the neck and started doing, like, the power suck thing that he did to Ajak and to Gilgamesh to steal their power. I wrote down, is that what made her stop having the mind-weary issue? Because in that process, he's also taking memory. From what I understood, him doing that and the fight that she had, especially with the fact that it was trying to use Gilgamesh against her in that fight, I'm pretty sure... It was her taking control over it and being able to fight it better. Because she still has it, and she's still affected by it, but I think she has more control over it. Well, I think after the fight, she doesn't have it anymore, because it's not seen oh, really? later on in a po- in the post credit scene that she's in. It's not seen after the fight. I just, in my mind, assumed that she was no longer affected by it. Oh, I mean, that very well could be the case, and I could have completely missed it. So I don't know. I could be wrong too. I'm sure we'll find out in the future, but that's why I, I just wrote that because I wasn't sure. So that fight happens and <laughs> we're getting to the point where Tiamut is literally coming out of the ground. The world is changing form. Islands are being sunk into the ground. Water is moving in strange ways. And there's literally a giant hand coming out of the ground. You see fingers come up first. Then you start to see his head appear. And you see the palm of his hand also start to appear. And Cersei is on the palm of Tiamut. Yep. And I thought that in that moment, the Unimind connection that happened was really, really cool. Oh, it is fantastic. And all the Eternals, including Icarus, kind of all become one. Yes. And we realize it's not because of the Unimind that they tried to create themselves, but because that is how the Eternals stay alive when a celestial is born is because the celestial connects them all like that to keep them from actually dying during the destruction of a world. But what the celestial did not account for is that Cersei was going to kill the celestial in that process. And I thought that Timut becoming completely like stone or marble or whatever he's made out of was so cool. Seriously, turning Tiramut into this stone was a really amazing thing to experience in the theater because the entire theater went dead silent afterwards. Yeah. 
except for one single person that coughed with ironic timing. Oh, no. Oh, no. Darn it, person who couldn't hold it in. And, like, yeah, but because I was having such a good time with this movie, myself and a few other people in the theater laughed because it was just yeah <laughs> perfectly timed. No, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> then Icarus, after this fight ends and Tumut is dead, somewhat apologizes, somewhat comes to terms with what he did, and then literally flies into the sun. Yeah, it's a little on the nose. That's what my note said. I was like, yeah. ah, okay. Yeah. Like, had you had a different name, like Icarus sounding, kind of like Thena versus Athena. Yeah. But for Icarus to fly into the sun, oh, yeah. okay. Like, I, all right. But, but Colin, it's okay because it's Icarus with a K. It is Icarus with a K. You're right. So that makes it all right. <laughs> but yeah, I said the same thing. I was like, well, that was a little too easy but that's okay yeah i i thought it was really sweet that cersei used what was left of her celestial power to make sprite a human so sprite could live a full actual life and not just be a child forever i am hoping that sprite is in future movies growing up so if i had to guess i think sprite will have maintained some of her power because looking at all the different movies that exist with her, you have Scott Lang's daughter in Ant-Man, you have Spider-Man, you you know, you know have Ironheart that's coming up soon, uh, Ms. Marvel, and uh, Shuri from Black Panther. I think we're going to get a Young Avengers movie. Yeah. And I really hope Sprite's on that team. That'd be really cool. That would be very, yeah. very cool. So after they're all done with the Timut situation and we see them at Festos's house and there's some comedic fun stuff in that scene and I just like it. We they, yeah, finally... they, they show that they are definitely still a family. Yeah. And they had a big fight, but you know what? They're family. Yeah. We then finally get to see Dane again. Cersei and Dane are finally catching up, getting back together, discussing the fact that Cersei cannot make him into a giraffe, even though that would be cool. He takes the news of her not only having superpowers... But her having fought and killed a celestial and literally saved the planet very well. Yes, he does. Yeah, he yeah. really does. And then and he's, he's trying to tell her something, too. You know, like, wow, yeah, you've had secrets. Well, I have secrets, too, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> On the note of Dane and his secret, <laughs> the note that I wrote is, Dane still seems cool, but with a secret? <laughs> I just thought that it was, <laughs> I was like, oh, I wonder what his secret is. But after we hear him say that, it gets really dark, and then... Cersei starts like kind of floating in the air almost and we look up into the sky and we see a big celestial head that is Erisham and my note for that says ah Erisham and then we see Cersei being taken away and we're in outer space outside of Earth's atmosphere. Oh yeah she's pulled way off off planet Earth. Yeah and so we see the full form of Erisham outside of Earth and the three Eternals that are still on Earth which are Cersei, Festos, and Kingo. And he is like, you disobeyed a Celestial's orders. As soon as he started talking, I wrote the note, they did. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, you saved the Earth and stopped a Celestial from being born. Why did you do this, essentially? And basically, he's like, I'm going to think about this. But I'm going to hold yeah. on to you guys. And then when I come back, I'm going to pass judgment on the Earth. Yeah, I'm going to go through all of your memories and decide if Earth is worthy of staying alive. God, I don't want to know what judgment on the earth looks like. I'm very afraid. <laughs> I think I think we got a taste of it in Guardians of the Galaxy when one of the Celestials uses the Power Stone and smashes it on the ground and just wipes out a planet. 
I think that was Judgment being cast on a planet that didn't make it. Yeah, maybe. That's fair. But yeah, very scary. Don't yeah, like it. An ominous note to end the movie on for sure. Yes. So that's the m- end of the movie. <laughs> and in these credit scenes that pop up, we see different things that had the Eternals existing in the history of the world. And the one that I wrote a note on, there was a poster that came up for Houdini and Houdini's assistant, Sprite. I was like, that was odd, but oh. you know what? Oh, I'm okay with that being canon. That's cool. That is cool. That's very cool. And then uh, we hit our first post credit scene where we get a drunk teleporting leprechaun. So, yes. But before we get that, we did not mention this while we were talking about, like, the actual movie. But what happens after the fight is all the other Eternals who aren't still on Earth took the ship and went to space to try and find other Eternals to explain to them what they actually are. Yeah, let them know what the actual mission is. Yes. So they're on the hunt for other Eternals. And yes, then this leprechaun dwarf drunk drunk guy named Pip appears. This was probably the most shocking part of the entire movie. For as much stuff as there was, this was the most I had no, I I still don't know how to interpret, think about, feel about this. Yeah. Like I'm not against it, but also it's just so different. So we meet Pip and Pip introduces Eros. And Eros says he is another Eternal. But he also says he is the brother of Thanos. Yeah, and that's uh, that's comic accurate. Is it? That's I, I mean, I guess that's, that would... It's an actual thing. I, I forget what the exact connection is and how it all works out. But yeah, that's accurate. That's really cool. I'm glad that they kept that comic accurate. But I'm very confused by these two statements working together. Mm-hmm. If Eros is an Eternal, but Thanos is his brother... Does that make Thanos an Eternal? Truth be told, I don't know what the exact connection is. Okay. It's just, it is a connection. It might be in the same way that, like, Thanos is the father of Gamora. Okay. But, like, that kind of connection. Because I'm like, if Eros is created, he doesn't really have a brother, per se. But if it's that kind of a brother, that makes sense. So, yeah, I don't really understand how that actual relationship really works. They'll probably explain it. But before we continue, I just want to take a moment to introduce my fiance, who is here with us because we actually had to cut for a minute because Colin had to go take care of something. But now he's back and we got my fiance, Marissa, to be here with us as well to finish out this podcast because she actually just came from seeing Eternals and she just walked in and she started talking to me about the things that she thought. So I was like, why don't you just come on over here? Tell everybody what you think. And I mean, we hope that you like her because we plan on having her on as a guest for some future episodes, depending on what we're talking about. So Marissa, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello. Yeah. Hi, I am Marissa. I did literally just walk in the door from seeing Eternals. And here I am, a little bit about myself. I'm a huge Marvel nerd, so I'm really excited to hopefully be on some of these podcasts where you guys talk about some Marvel movies, because I love them a lot. (laughs) So within the podcast, we're currently talking about the post-credit scenes of Eternals. And Marissa, you were telling this story, and everybody needs to hear this. (laughs) So we were just talking about Eros and how Eros in the post credit scene says that he is an Eternal, but also Thanos' brother. But you mm-hmm. just tell us <laughs> your thoughts on Eros. So, I mean, I was seeing this movie on a Monday night at 10 o'clock at night. So it was me and two other people in the theater, a nice, lovely couple. And right after that post credit scene, 
all of a sudden, like at the same time, this couple, they both go, Harry Styles? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Not expecting to see Harry Styles as Eros in this movie. Yeah, no. My... It was just as shocking as seeing a drunken leprechaun teleporting. Yes. Yeah. Very confused yeah. by that too, but hey, it's cool. But it was really cool because even as we were walking out of the theater, that couple... They were like, of course, like of all people to get their way into a Marvel movie, like it would be Harry Styles. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. And for who Eros is as a character, I have a feeling Harry Styles is going to knock it out of the park. Yes, and they they were saying that too. They seem to be also big Marvel nerds because I feel like you have to be if you're going to see Eternals on a Monday night at 10 o'clock at night. Fair enough. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. (laughs) So basically, Eros is coming into their ship however he's doing that magically with teleportation to help them. It looked like the same kind of technology that Thor uses with the Bifrost. It almost looked similar to that, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird going from this transitionary moment where the MCU so far has been very tech based. Mm -hmm. And now we're going into some of the cosmic magic based stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So this is definitely like, Hey, by the way, we're, we're done with, with the infinity saga. It's, it's time to move forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a new world. <laughs> yeah. It's new terrain and we're all very confused by it, but I'm very here for it at the same mm-hmm. time. And yeah. basically, you just saw it. You talk about it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Eros is Thanos's brother. Is what he says yes. to them. You know, he introduces himself as Eros, brother of Thanos from Titan, and that he's here to help them or that he he knows where to find the people that they're looking for which is the I'm the, a, eternals, I'm a, that, the, the eternals that um, that Arsham took took yes yeah and that just leads more to at the end of the movie you know they say the eternals will return yeah you know is, is there going to be an eternals 2 or is that going to be some sort of like avengers style movie where it's eternals based like it, it's i'm the future of the mcu is weird I'm curious what because I didn't I didn't really look it up but I mean now getting kind of into the second post credit scene the voice that speaks at the very end oh who that, that was that's Blade like Mahershala Ali Blade like the movie that's coming up oh okay uh, gotcha that's, that's who speaks to him asking him if he actually wants to pick up the sword okay. so second post credit scene yeah we show up and uh, Dane is there. And he is looking at a family heirloom passed down by his uncle, and it is a black sword. And this thing looks awesome. Like, this is a really cool-looking sword. And if you don't know, Dane is a descendant of the Black Knight and Mm -hmm. has that in his character. That's the secret that he was holding. Right. And the character of the Black Knight, he picks up the sword and fights. And for every person that he kills with the sword, he becomes stronger. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, crazier. So it, it's almost like the more you kill, the more of a frenzy it causes, but the more powerful you become, therefore the better fighter you become, and it's a balancing act. Blade showing up and asking him if he wants to pick up that sword or not makes me even more curious about what's going to happen in the Blade movie. Like, is he going to show up there? Yeah. I don't know much about Blade. Yeah, I know nothing about any of it, so I'm just very confused. So I'm very excited to see what happens. <laughs> Blade is a vampire hunter. Okay. Yeah, and like the original Blade movies uh, way back when are what actually caused Marvel Studios to succeed because Blade was either going to bankrupt the studio or it was going to pass and allow Marvel to continue being a studio. Interesting. So Blade is kind of back to the roots of the MCU. Hmm. 
it's the it's the original superhero movie. It's kind of what allowed other studios to look and go, oh yeah, superhero movies. This might actually work. Neat. Well, cool. Yeah. Well, then I am very excited to see where that goes. I'm just very excited for the future of the MCU in general. I know we were kind of talking a little bit just about how excited we are for Spider-Man No Way Home and what that will bring to the future of the MCU and just all the other movies that are coming out. I'm just very, very excited to see what direction they take the MCU in now that... I mean, they even said it at points in the Eternals where they're like, you know, Iron Man's gone, Steve Rogers is gone, who's the next head of the Avengers? Like, they said that in the movie, mm-hmm. and I was like, ooh, <laughs> like, that's just interesting because it's it's true. It's like, where it's kind of a nod to where are they going to go from here? Yeah. And that kind of feels like the overall theme of Phase 4, where mm-hmm. it's this very, like, phases 1 through 3 happened, the Infinity Saga finished, and mm-hmm. now the MCU is continuing on. Yeah. So all all these characters that normally that would be the end of their story suddenly, you know, where does the story go from here? Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, what's happening because of all this cosmic stuff happening? Right. Yeah. So that means phase five is going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's going to be wild. Oh yeah. It's mm-hmm. already wild. Like I don't. <laughs> yeah. There's so yeah. much happening all at the same time. It's very cool though. Yeah. I know we joked about Harry Styles being in the MCU, but also I'm kind of excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Oh. I do love Harry Styles. <laughs> it was just a shock to see him. Yeah, especially as Eros. He's yeah. that's going to be a, a weird character to see added into what they've already created. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. So that wraps up our spoilering. Spoilering. <laughs> um, so that's the movie um, and its post-credit scene. Um, so Colin, why don't you go first? What would you rate this movie? All right, so overall, I thought this movie looked amazing. And I had way more fun than I thought I would, especially going in not really knowing who the Eternals were or not knowing what was going to happen or not even realizing that, like, this would recontextualize all of the history of the MCU so far into what we have already seen. You know, this is movie, what, 24, 23, and after all the Disney Plus shows? So I, I had a lot of fun with it. It was funny. I really enjoyed some of the characters, and... I had a good time. I would rate this movie probably a four. Yeah, probably right around there. Like, it was good. It wasn't like Captain America Civil War, and it wasn't an Infinity War, but it was definitely not Thor The Dark World. You know? No, it was not Thor The Dark World. <laughs> um, oh, God. <laughs> but th- this, I had fun. So, yeah, I would rate it as a four. Cool. So, Marissa, you've listened to the podcast. What would you rate this movie from one to five? So I also walked into this movie with the same mindset of having really no clue who the Eternals were and no clue what to expect of this movie. And I also didn't, like you said, like I had no idea it was going to kind of shape or help shape the future of the MCU. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. It did make me cry at one point. (laughs) So that gives it bonus points. Not every day you cry in a Marvel movie, if you're me. So I did really enjoy this movie. I enjoyed the humor of it. I enjoyed the story of it. And it gave me a really similar feel to how I felt about Shang-Chi, which was it almost, it took me, it, it didn't feel like I was watching another Marvel movie A lot of the other Marvel movies have a very similar feel. It seems like these future Marvel movies have a little bit of a different feel, and it's kind of new and refreshing, and I really like that. So I would give it a 4.5. I really enjoyed this movie. Very cool. That's awesome. I really liked it. I kind of want to go see it again, even though it's midnight. Yeah, don't do it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. (laughs) What what about you, John? What what do you think? So... I I was talking Colin. I was talking to you right before we started recording, and I like wrote down my number before we started, and I wrote down a three point five. 
Um, just based on my thoughts, especially after seeing it the second time, um, one thing that I felt as I was watching it the second time was I was having trouble, like, staying focused. And I think for me, that's just because there is so much character building and so much, like, exposition for each character throughout this movie. So I'm like, I already know who they are. I know all this about them. I just want something to move and, like, something action-y to happen. But after talking about it again, it made me a lot more excited about it. I think I would put it at a 4 instead of a 3.5, and I feel like I always up my rating after we discuss (laughs) because I'm like, wow, those were some cool things. So, but I would, I would give it a four out of five. Yeah. Um, I think okay. in doing that though, this is one that we have not talked about publicly, but Colin and I discussed Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings mm-hmm. a while back just on our own. And I had given that a four out of five, but I think if I was going to give this a four out of five, I'd have to revise it and give that a 4.5 mm-hmm. because I did like Shang-Chi, I think more than Eternals. Okay. So that's where I'm yeah. at with that. That's just me okay. bumping no, my I, ratings. I'm in, I'm in the exact same boat. I would have to yeah. do the exact same thing because after watching this movie and having as much fun as I did with it. Yeah. Shang-Chi was, yeah, I, I definitely, well, Shang-Chi had a dragon. <laughs> so It did. But I really like yeah. the energy that both movies have kind of brought to the cinematic universe at this point, because it's almost refreshing. It's a little different. They're going down these different roads. They're very diverse. I love all the di- diversity that's in both of the movies. Yeah. So yeah, I've really, am enjoying these newer MCU movies. And I'm very excited to see what the future holds. Yeah. yeah. Me too. And that about covers everything that we, all three of us, have to say about the Eternals. <laughs> so hopefully you enjoyed listening to what you heard. And if you did, please don't forget to rate us five stars on whatever podcast listening place you like to use. If you didn't enjoy what you heard today, Arishim will be disappointed in you. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And with that, you should still go give us that five-star rating. Uh, There are new episodes of The Other Brothers Podcast every Tuesday. If you have any suggestions for what we should review next, you can let us know on Twitter, at OtherBrosPod. And most importantly, please tell everybody you know about us. We're still a new podcast. We're still trying to get our name out there and get more listeners. So let everybody know if you liked what you heard. I've been Colin. I've been John. And a big thank you to our special guest, my wonderful fiance marissa for being here for the last 20 minutes of this podcast (laughs) and thank you for listening to another episode of the other brothers podcast and we will see you next week bye